Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. It's Amit and Dan. Thanks for joining us as we tour fellowship programs across the country. As part of the Cardio Nerds Case Report series, produced in collaboration with the American College of Cardiology Fellows and Training section, each episode will feature a cardiology fellowship program. Fellows from that program will present and teach about a fascinating case and share what makes their hearts flutter about their program. Each case discussion is followed by an eCPR segment from a content expert and a message from their program director. Before we dive in, just remember, we are an independent educational platform. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is 100% HIPAA compliant. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education, promote diversity and inclusion, empower everyone to learn and teach from the basics to the advanced while fostering wellness and humanity. If you believe in the mission, consider supporting us on patreon.com forward slash cardio nerds. Every little bit goes a long way. And now, without further ado, let's continue on our tour with another fascinating case from amazing Cardio Nerds colleagues. My fellow Cardio Nerds, welcome back to another fabulous case discussion. Today, we are just so honored to be joined by our colleagues, fellows from the Georgetown University Cardiology Fellowship Program. We have with us today Drs. Nithin Malik, Sion Abera, and AJ Grant. So folks, I'm going to ask you to introduce yourselves, but I just have to take this moment to tell the audience how special it is for us to have your program on our show. This whole series really actually started off as we thought about developing a very engaging case-based episode format, and thankfully the CNCR has met the mark and more. But really the specific series with engaging the fellowship programs within the context of recruitment in a COVID era virtual interview season started off when our now good friend, Dr. Noshin Riza, chair of ACC Fit, reached out to us to just think about ways of addressing this virtual recruitment cycle. And then we thought, hey, why don't we do this with fellowship programs and give the fellowship programs an opportunity to feature themselves for prospective applicants? And it was Dr. Gabby Weissman, your program director and the chair of the ACC's Program Directors and Graduate Medical Educator Section, who went on a limb and took a chance on us humble cardio nerds by sending an email on our behalf to every single program director of a cardiology fellowship program in the United States and offered to do this with us. His support and mentorship and encouragement really helped set this whole train in motion, which I think we can all agree has just been such an incredible way to begin to achieve our primary and chief goal of democratizing cardiovascular education. I mean, what is better than having cardiology fellows like Nithin, Sion, and AJ from more than 45 programs come and enrich our platform and really the world of cardiology with the incredible teaching that we're about to witness today. On behalf of the Cardio Nerds, a very heartfelt thanks to Dr. Gabby Weissman for taking a chance, and I hope that we are making him proud. So on that note, Nithin, Sion, and AJ, so glad to have you on the show. Really excited to dive into what is going to be just an incredible case for the audience. But before we dive in, tell the audience who you are. Amit, thanks so much for that 
really kind introduction. My name is Nitin Mullick. I'm a second year cardiology fellow. I went to medical school at the University of Virginia and residency at Johns Hopkins. I plan to do advanced cardiac imaging in my future career, probably MRI and advanced echo. Outside of cardiology, I enjoy going for runs. I also do a North Indian folk dance called Bhangra, which is a dance I've been doing since I was little. It's very energetic and colorful. And I had the opportunity to showcase it as a resident with Dan and Amit, and ultimately part of our six-year and running victory at Turkey Rounds. So something I've enjoyed doing for a while and something that I think is really fun to do. Hey, Cardio Nerds. Thanks for having us on the show. My name is AJ Grant. I'm a second-year cardiology fellow with Nathan. I did my medical school at Meharry Medical College in Nashville, Tennessee. I did my residency at Emory University. Uh, in the future, I'm interested in marrying advanced imaging, particularly MRI, with sports cardiology. Outside of work, I love spending time with my family. I also run a food blog with one of my good friends from medical school called The Doctor's Orders, geared to create healthy recipes for my patients. I'm an avid soccer player, and so I try to get out in the field as much as possible. Hey, everybody. My name's Siona Barra. I went to medical school at Yale, and I did my residency at Duke. Now I'm a first-year fellow at Georgetown Washington Hospital Center. And I just had a baby two and a half months ago. It's sort of been an interesting kind of collision of multiple different aspects of my life. But he's brought a lot of perspective and a lot of joy to my life. So aside from that, I used to really enjoy singing. I don't do it as often, but every once in a while, I, I get a chance to go back and sing with my choir. I went to Harvard for undergrad, and I was in a group called the Kumba Singers of Harvard College, as we specialized in music of the African diaspora and Negro spirituals. And so that is always fun when I get an opportunity. It's less often now that I'm so busy, but I really enjoy that. Wow. Sion, congratulations on the baby. Amazing. AJ, you definitely need to share your blog so we can all visit it and potentially also share it on the Cardio Nerds amazing blog that's going to be for this episode. And Nithin, I am so excited to share with everyone that your first central line was done with me when you were a wee intern and I was a wee junior resident. <laughs> resident <laughs> I have fond memories of that, Dan. Fond <laughs> memories. <laughs> it was amazing. And, and while I hopefully taught Nathan a lot about internal jugular access, he taught me how to consent the patients the right way because I was trying to rush him so that we could get the ball rolling. But he actually took the time to consent the right way. And I actually was reminded of how to do that the appropriate way. And I took a lot out of that. So Hopefully we both taught each other. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I also wanted to echo Amit's words about Dr. Weisman. We really thank you so much for taking the leap with us for this incredible project. And we just are so appreciative. Guys, we're close. I can literally feel you guys from Baltimore. But I've picked up Amit from Cleveland and we have rushed over to D.C. We want you guys to take us to your favorite spot in D.C. and set the stage so that we can have an amazing conversation about cardiology. All right, cardio nerds. DC is one of my absolute favorite cities in the whole wide world, and there are really so many great places to hang. From the National Mall to the amazing museums, there are just some really cool spots around the city. But for this episode, we're going to grab some fresh Maryland blue crab cakes at the wharf and head over to the Georgetown waterfront and hopefully catch the cherry blossoms in season. That was incredible. A little Punjabi <laughs> <laughs> I just have to say, I just have to say that 
For people who don't know Nathan, I had the honor of being one of his co-residents. Nathan is such a sweet, kind, gentle soul, one of the most humble forces of nature that I know. But once he was on the dance floor, and at Hopkins, we have this tradition called Turkey Rounds, and every sort of group of residents puts on the show. I have to say, Nathan tore it up. It was incredible. I would love to go grab some crab cakes and enjoy the harbor. You guys live in such a beautiful city. But after we're done, we have to go and just watch Nathan dance. <laughs> maybe we can get maybe we can get some tips. Yeah. So, <laughs> so on that note, why don't we dive into cardiology, cardio nerd style, uh, or shall we say Georgetown style? Yeah, let's hear it. Bring us the case. Okay. So this was a case from the consult service for tachycardia and hypotension. Our patient is a 32-year-old female with a history of Crohn's disease, endometriosis, and anxiety, who initially presented to her gastroenterologist's office for worsening symptoms of abdominal pain, constipation, and nausea. She initially started on adalimumab, known as Humira, in 2018. Her disease had been moderately controlled until approximately four months ago, when she began having worsening nausea associated with constipation and abdominal pain. At that time, prednisone 40 milligrams daily was added to her adalimumab regimen. This dose was decreased to 15 milligrams twice daily a few months later. However, on the day of presentation, she reported worsening pain and fevers as high as 104 Fahrenheit. In the clinic, she was noted to be tachycardic to the 160s with systolic blood pressures in the low 100s. Thus, she was sent to the ED for further evaluation and eventually admitted to the internal medicine service for management. Wow, sounds like the patient's sick. Thanks for that summary in HPI. Sounds to me like she could be suffering from an infection, potentially be having worsening of her Crohn's flare, or that some other underlying systemic process is going on that we're not sure of. Why don't we dive deep into her past medical history uh, and go further? Okay. So as I mentioned, she has a past medical history of Crohn's disease, endometriosis, anxiety, and also depression. Her past surgical history was notable for a prior C-section and laparoscopy for endometriosis. She has no known family history of autoimmune or cardiac illness. For social history, she's never smoked, she rarely drinks alcohol, and denies illicit drug use. She's married and works as a manager, and she's a mother to a young child. For medicines, she takes famotidine, adalimumab, a multivitamin, prednisone 15 milligrams twice daily, and Tylenol PRN. She's allergic to penicillins, clindamycin, and ciprofloxacin. AJ, with those vital signs in the clinic and that story, what do you think the primary team is thinking thus far? Yes, Sion. Like Nithin was saying, we have a young Crohn's patient who is chronically immunosuppressed, presenting to the GI clinic with abdominal symptoms. I definitely think Crohn's flare is pretty high in our differential, but we also have to think about sepsis. And considering treatment for each is very different, it'll be crucial that we figure out as soon as possible how to identify the underlying cause of her condition. Sion, why don't you take us through the rest of her hospital course and ultimately why you guys were consulted? And AJ, I just have to say that I really appreciate you talking about sepsis. All of the treatment she's on for Crohn's disease is immunocompromising. You think about sepsis, is this a sepsis that localizes to a GI source, potentially even related to Crohn's disease with fistulizing Crohn's and or perforation, possible abscess formation? Or is this completely unrelated to Crohn's-related sepsis or Crohn's-related abdominal infection? Could this be something else entirely? Again, because this patient is pretty profoundly even a compromise, especially with a recent escalation of her steroid use. So definitely thinking about the host here and her predispositions, but she's coming in with fever and a lot of red flags for an infection that may or may not be related directly to Crohn's. 
So, Sian, let's hear what happens next because I'm quite concerned about this patient. Well, the next day, she was noted to have an acute worsening of her abdominal pain associated with fevers and systolic blood pressures in the 90s. A CT scan at that time showed free air with concern for perforation of the jejunum. She was started on aggressive IV resuscitation, her antibiotics were broadened, and she was taken emergently to the OR for exploratory laparotomy. In the OR, she underwent small bowel resections times three, with a primary anastomosis times two. Unfortunately, she required multiple pressors postoperatively, secondary to suspected septic shock, as her estimated blood loss was pretty minimal, about 20 cc's during the case. Her antibiotics were continued, she was started on stress-dose steroids, given her chronic steroid use, and she was up-triaged to the SICU. Pathology results from the OR showed chronic transmural inflammation, which was, at that time, attributed to involvement by Crohn's disease. They continued aggressive management with fluid, pressors, broad-spectrum antibiotics, and IV steroids for Crohn's flare and suspected sepsis. She was taken back to the OR on hospital day 14 after repeat non-con CT in the setting of developing peritoneal signs showed worsening pneumoperitoneum and free fluid in the abdomen, as well as loculated fluid collections. Incidentally, a small to moderate pericardial effusion was noted as well. She then underwent small bowel resection, ileocecectomy, and end ileostomy creation. This time, pathology from the OR identified intracytoplasmic yeast forms consistent with histoplasmosis infection. Ultimately, review of pathology from her first surgery with additional staining revealed disseminated histoplasmosis, which was not initially identified. In light of the pathology findings, amphotericin was started. As a brief aside, definitely check out the website at cardionerds.com to take a look at the histopathology slides that have been kindly provided by our colleagues. Our team would like to thank Dr. Roshanak Darakshande from Georgetown University Hospital's Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine for kindly preparing the histopathology images for our discussion. Yeah, this, uh, this case definitely took a turn and I think, again, just highlights the degree of immunosuppression that this patient is under. And just thinking about histoplasmosis as an endemic mycosis that potentially I may see more of because I live in Cleveland, Ohio. I was wondering, is this patient local to you guys, or is this patient traveling from somewhere else? Uh, what are exposures maybe apart from immunosuppression for actually being exposed to histo? So there was no recent travel history, as far as we could tell. She was relatively local and seemed like she was relatively local her entire life. Uh, she had just changed her GI provider, but it wasn't that far out of the Maryland area. So the occurrence of histoplasmosis certainly seemed out of left field. Now, it's not like we are that far out of the affected area, and it's certainly something you should suspect in anyone who is this severely immunosuppressed. Yeah, and my knowledge of histoplasmosis is reaching back into what we learned for boards, and we learned the simplified associations, right? Histoplasmosis, maybe the Ohio River Valley, et cetera, et cetera. But of course, the truth is much more complicated than that. And I'm looking at a map now. It's a pretty broad area, almost like the entire east half of the United States, and definitely including areas like West Virginia and Virginia which really aren't too far from you. So I think totally fair game. And the addition of immunosuppression probably was a really important factor in this situation. But this is a great medicine case. There's a lot of complexity going on in terms of sepsis and surgery and Crohn's. But how did we get involved as cardiologists? I'm glad you asked, Amit. Sion, why don't you take our case forward? Sure. So the next day, her tachycardia persisted with rates in the 160s, despite fluid resuscitation, which led them to seek cardiology consultation, particularly in light of the effusion that was described. What an interesting case so far, Sion. AJ, could you summarize the case for us thus far? Sure. We have a young female Crohn's patient who initially presented with abdominal pains and nausea, 
Subsequently, she developed abdominal perforation, necessitating surgical repair attempts too. We've now discovered that she has disseminated histoplasmosis, and she remains critically ill in the SICU with sinus tachycardia, and now we find this new pericardial effusion. Yeah, and I'll just jump in. It's been a while since I've done the consult service, actually. A lot of times we get paged for consults of tachycardia, and some people, not cardio nerds necessarily, groan at that because, you know, sinus tachycardia, it's obviously secondary to something. But I think this case really highlights the fact that the primary team are providing amazing care. And, you know, obviously they have a really sick patient in front of them who has disseminated histoplasmosis and multiple abdominal surgeries and has obviously gone through maybe waxing and waning septic shock from all that she's done. And so they've done the evaluation for why she's having a tachycardia. And so sometimes when they're reaching out to cardiology for tachycardia, and again, here it might be different because they have a, we're smelling that there's some sort of pericardial effusion and trying to see if we can tie to that. But sometimes when they're reaching out for us to help them with their tachycardia, it's because they've done everything X, Y, and Z. And so it's a real opportunity for us to go in and weigh in and really connect with these teams and help sort out what's going on. And sometimes it may be the primary issue, the primary etiology of why they're in the hospital that's having a secondary tachycardia. But sometimes you'll find that maybe it's something else and maybe the team has thought a lot about it because you remember they are the ones taking care of these kinds of conditions all the time. And we maybe focus more on the cardiovascular system. And so they know, wow, this tachycardia is out of proportion to what a patient with this particular illness has. And so they may have their spidey senses up and be calling for help to help figure this out. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear what's happening next. Thanks, Dan. That's an excellent point. Well, the differential is very broad for tachycardia. Nathan, why don't you take us through what you'd be thinking for this patient? Yeah. I generally think of sinus tachycardia as a response to some underlying process. And if I can't find an underlying process, then I start thinking if this is an inappropriate sinus tachycardia. In this particular patient, I'd be especially concerned of sepsis or septic shock, especially because we know from her histopathology slides that she has demonstrated histoplasmosis. I'd also be concerned for hypovolemia in the setting of her recent surgeries and would evaluate for any possible sources for bleeding. We did know that there was a pericardial effusion on her CT scan, and because the patient is hemodynamically borderline, are likely going to evaluate this further with an echocardiogram. Yeah, Nitin, that's a great point. And if I had a dime for every time I was consulted for sinus tachycardia, I'd probably have a dollar. I don't know. But <laughs> right, but it is a not infrequent question. And I really appreciate Dan's comments that if they are consulting you, it's because they've thought about the triggers, right? I and mean, the usual triggers. But I would think about sinus tachycardia under maybe three different buckets, right? And of course, this is all assuming this is sinus tachycardia and not a other arrhythmia. So for sinus tachycardia, so one is a hemodynamic trigger, right? So heart rate is such an important factor for cardiac output. So you can imagine how the heart rate is an important way that the body essentially augments cardiac output if there is a hemodynamic stress, like decreased SVR for vasodilatory shock, decreased preload for hypovolemic shock, decreased stroke volume for some sort of cardiogenic shock or obstructive shock. So that's one big bucket, a hemodynamic response. The second big bucket for me is an adrenergic response, which oftentimes will overlap with the hemodynamic, but you can imagine a pure adrenergic response to a stressed state like anxiety, pain, nausea, panic. And you can have this adrenergic response because you have beta receptors in your SA node and AV node for chronotropy. And then the third major box for me is an inappropriate sinus tachycardia. This is a primary arrhythmia. 
And within the three boxes, I think inappropriate sinus tachycardia is probably the lowest on my differential diagnosis because just epidemiologically, by base rates, the sinus tachycardia is going to be some sort of a hemodynamic trigger. And so that's what we have to figure out. What is the hemodynamic trigger for a accelerated sinus tachycardia? So is this patient having sepsis? Is there a PE? Is there some sort of cardiogenic situation going on? And that is probably one of the most concerning red flags in evaluating a patient who may be off their homeostasis. Yeah, and I'll just add that I love the way you broke it down, Amit. And speaking from the hemodynamic kinds of tachycardia where your body's compensating, when you look at the tachycardia, obviously what the thing that you're going to look at next is the blood pressure. And that's going to be probably 999 percent of the time going to be a major clue in what's going on with your patient. But the caveat is, especially when it comes to cardiogenic stuff or cardiac related issues, tachycardia may be associated with normal or low normal blood pressures, but actually be an early sign of a hyperperfused state. We say this all the time on the show, one of the scariest rhythms, and we quote Steve Sue, one of the cardiomyopathy attendings at Hopkins for saying sinus tachycardia is one of the most scariest rhythms for him to see. And that's because it's a sign of impending doom and gloom for many patients with cardiogenic issues that are going on. And so sometimes a scan of the vital signs is not enough. You got to actually lay hands on the patient and assess their perfusion and then dig deeper and look at the labs and mental status and urinary output and then put that whole picture together. So that's one of the things that make me so excited about consults and discussions about sinus tachycardia, because you really have to holistically take in the patient to really appreciate what's going on so often. Yeah. And taking it back to our specific patient, Dan, like you said, there's so much that could be going on here, right? This patient is post-op, so could they be bleeding? They're not able to eat properly because they've had uh, GI surgery and so their gut's still not functioning. So could this be hypovolemic? Are they having pain in a post-op state? So could this be adrenergic or nauseous because their gut's not moving? So adrenergic. Could this be related to their immunocompromised state and coming in with a fever and disseminated histoplasmosis? Is this sepsis mediated? And if it's not histoplasmosis, which is the original infectious trigger, could this be a new nosocomial infection with a post-op pneumonia or UTI or along those lines? This patient is hospitalized and post-op and infected, so pretty high risk for a DVT-PE. Could that be the trigger? And Nathan, as you said, this patient had at least some degree of pericardial effusion on a CT. And I'll say that the CT itself is not diagnostic of tamponade physiology. And so we clearly have to do more evaluation there. But could that be the trigger? Could this patient have sepsis cardiomyopathy? And that's a trigger. So right now, you know, it's like Dan said, this is almost like you've got to put our detective hats on. And it's such an exciting sort of console question to be asked, because it's like fatigue for the internal medicine doctor. The differential is broad and almost unending, but we anchor ourselves to who the patient is and go through the different aspects one by one. So, Nathan, what did you guys do next to evaluate this further? The next step, of course, is going to the bedside and examining. So, Sion, why don't you tell us what her exam looked like and what some of her initial data looked like? Sure, Nathan. On exam, her temperature was 37.7, but in the hospital, she had a Tmax documented as high as 39 degrees Celsius. Her heart rate was 157. She had a respiratory rate of 35. Her blood pressure at the time was 121 over 84 and she had an O2 sat of 99% on room air. In general, she appeared ill. She was a thin female. She was anxious, but alert and oriented. On HEANT exam, she was normal cephalic. Her oropharynx was clear, and she had an NG tube in place. She was in no respiratory distress. Her lungs were clear to auscultation, and she had no adventitious lung sounds. On heart exam, she was tachycardic. She had no murmurs, rubs, or gallops. There was no peripheral edema. 
She had palpable distal pulses and warm extremities. Her JVP was 9 centimeters of water above the right atrium. On abdominal exam, she had a post-surgical abdomen with dressings and an ostomy bag in place. Her bowel sounds were hypoactive. She had no gross deformities of the extremities, and all extremities had full range of motion, although with some discomfort. Her skin was warm and dry. She had no rashes. She was alert and oriented, and she was cooperative and anxious appearing. Okay, Seung, thank you for that very thorough physical exam. It was really interesting, and there were a lot of things I didn't quite expect. One thing that I really wanted to note was the heart rate was very fast at 157. Additionally, it should be noted that she did appear ill-appearing, which should heighten the sense of urgency for the consult. Additionally, it was noted that she said her JVP was elevated. When thinking about patients with sinus tachycardia, hypovolemic causes come to mind quickly. Noting that her JVP was elevated will lead me to think in a different direction. Additionally, I think we should note that her lungs were clear to auscultation. In patients with elevated JVP, it is interesting to note that her lungs were clear at the same time. Additionally, she did not have any peripheral edema, which can further lead us to think about other causes of her presentation. I'm really interested to see what her laboratory values would show to help us further narrow our differential. Yeah, and before we jump into the labs, I really love what we're saying here, especially when you approach these patients. Something so important as you basically get to the bedside is what is their volume status? Because not only is it important in terms of the differential diagnosis and assessing whether a patient is euvolemic or hypovolemic, which is maybe contributing to the tachycardia, but you're also asking yourself, does this patient need more fluid or not? That a lot of times is the question that you're assessing. And so the neck exam is really critical here, as well as your other ancillary exams. Sometimes you could use POCUS and look at the IVC that could potentially point you in a direction of volume up or volume down. But this is very helpful. And when you see a patient with JVP elevated, you're like, okay, I probably don't need to fill the tank here to bring down the heart rate. In fact, sometimes giving more fluid can worsen things, particularly if this patient is in RV failure. And we have to remember the JVP is the venous side of the peripheral system, which means we're like looking at what is the RV doing with this fluid. And you may have gone to the patient and said, I need to give them another liter wide open. I'm not sure if we adequately fluid resuscitated them. And then you go and you see elevated JVP. That makes you question that strategy. I might make things worse. Is there RV failure? Is there pulmonary hypertension? Or is there a left-sided failure that's driving all of this? And it makes you question your diagnosis of hypovolemia. And again, like you said, AJ, just rethink things and try to get more information before you jump to any conclusions. So definitely labs and imaging data would just be very helpful in this particular patient to suss out and tease out what's going on. Sure. Her lab showed a sodium of 137, potassium of 4.1, chloride was 102, bicarb was 26, she had a BUN of 18 and a creatinine of 0.64, glucose was 122. AST and ALT were 44 and 94, she had an ALK boss of 603, total billy was 0.4, calcium 8.5, magnesium 2.2, protein was 5.7, and albumin was 2.1. She had a white count of 2.8 with a neutrophil percentage of 76.3. Her hemoglobin was 9.4 and hematocrit was 29.7 with a platelet count of 215. She had an INR of 1.0. Troponin on admission day 9 was 0.043. NT pro BNP wasn't drawn. She had a lactate of 1.5. ESR was 30. CRP was 120. Lipase was 89. Her urinalysis was unremarkable, and blood cultures were drawn, but ultimately there was no growth. Chest x-ray showed increasing pulmonary edema with bilateral perihilar haziness 
and indistinct pulmonary vascularity. She had small to moderate pleural effusions, right, greater than left. Her cardiac silhouette, however, now appeared enlarged with a water bottle appearance. All findings were new compared to her admission chest x-ray, which was normal. Great. Thanks, Sion. There are a few abnormalities that we should point out from her labs. She has some mildly elevated transaminases, namely her AST and ALT, but what's most notable is her ALFOS, which is very elevated to 603. This was later attributed to her histoplasmosis. She does also have elevated inflammatory markers with a CRP of 120. Otherwise, the other interesting aspect is her chest x-ray, which seems to show some mixed information based off of the discussion we've had so far, as it does demonstrate some pulmonary edema and also small to moderate pleural effusions bilaterally. The most interesting aspect of this chest x-ray, however, is her cardiac silhouette, which is now bigger compared to her baseline cardiac silhouette from admission. That enlarged cardiac silhouette is really something that's notable, especially when we were suspecting a pericardial effusion. What's also notable is that it was new compared to the admission chest x-ray. And this really has to worry you that she has an expanding pericardial effusion that is causing hemodynamic effects, namely her tachycardia and the fact that she appears uncomfortable. Yeah, the enlarging cardiomyocinal silhouette is very concerning, right? Because these chest x-rays, and again, for the audience, just take a look. The chest x-ray just look like it's a different person's chest x-ray, right? You went from almost a normal appearing cardiac silhouette to a very abnormal appearing cardiac silhouette. It's grown in size with respect to the total diameter of the thorax. And honestly, I can't think of too many things in the differential diagnosis for a rapidly growing cardiac silhouette. Even if we think about acute cardiac injury in the form of ischemia or non-ischemic causes like myocarditis, typically we think that the chamber volumes don't change that rapidly. And if you remember from our first CNCR with COVID myocarditis, the patient actually had enlarged chambers that completely resolved with treatment of the myocarditis. And so certainly you can potentially have some dilation of the LV and the RV, but this is just such a profound change over a number of days. And I'm thinking, could this be a pericardial effusion or is this some sort of like totally different technique? Do we go from a PA film to an AP film? But short of that, I don't know if you guys have different thoughts, but besides a pericardial effusion, I don't have too many other things on my differential diagnosis. No, I think that's great, Ahmed. And also the two chest x-rays here, it does almost look like two separate people. And what's also worrisome is that this patient has been in the hospital and the initial chest x-ray looks far better than the current chest x-ray. And that's always a very concerning sign. I mean, she's in our care and yet something's going on. There's a process that's evolving that we definitely have to tackle. So I'd be curious to see more about her cardiac evaluation, potentially her ECG. Maybe that could shed more light. But we're obviously all thinking about the pericardium at this point in time, and it'll be really interesting to hear what information we get and glean from the images going forward. Sion, why don't you take us through the EKG and her echo? Sure. Essentially, her EKG shows sinus tachycardia and low-voltage QRS, which is consistent with possible pericardial effusion. Her TTE showed grossly normal LV size and moderately decreased systolic function. Her LVEF was 35 to 40%. However, this is in the setting of profound tachycardia, which also limited the ability to assess regional wall motion. The RV systolic function was hyperdynamic. A moderate pericardial effusion was present, but there was no echocardiographic evidence of tamponade. There were also no hemodynamically significant valvular abnormalities. A few days later, 
The echo was repeated, as she had not clinically improved. Her TTE now showed a large pericardial effusion with early tamponade physiology, including intermittently early diastolic free wall collapse of the RV. Wow, Siong, it's such an interesting TTE. Can you teach us about common echo findings in tamponade cases? Absolutely. On TTE, M-mode and 2D Doppler are the standard modes for detection of pericardial effusion and tamponade. Common echo findings of cardiac tamponade include a late diastolic collapse of the RA, early diastolic collapse of the RV, greater than 30% and 60% respiratory variation of the mitral and tricuspid inflow velocities, respectively, and a dilated IVC that does not change with respiration. Additionally, hepatic venous flow, blunting, or frank reversal with expiration may be seen. Note that mitral inflow velocities, which are collected on pulsed wave Doppler, typically decrease with inspiration, while tricuspid inflow velocities typically increase. The opposite is true during expiration. Mitral inflows increase, while tricuspid inflows decrease. This finding is the echocardiographic manifestation of pulses paradoxes. Thanks, Sion, for summarizing those echo findings. AJ, why don't you talk us through how to think about tamponade and what the possible causes of tamponade might be? Sure, Nathan. As you know, the pericardium is composed of two layers, the visceral pericardium and the parietal pericardium. The pericardial space, or sac, is contained within these two layers and normally contains up to about 50 cc's of serous fluid. When larger amounts of fluid accumulate between these two layers of tissue, they form what we know as pericardial effusion. Now, the differential for a pericardial effusion is quite broad and pretty much involves any disease that leads to some sort of inflammation of the pericardium. Now, broadly speaking, there are about four main categories for the etiologies of an effusion. First, there are infectious causes, which include certain viruses, bacteria, TB, and less frequently some fungi. There are also non-infectious etiologies, which may include inflammatory disorders such as SLE, rheumatoid, Sjogren's, and even some cancers can present as a new effusion. Radiation exposure is also an inflammatory cause of new pericardial effusion. Mechanical stress can cause effusion. Examples would include post-cardiac surgery, trauma to the heart, or a dissecting aortic aneurysm. And then finally, about 15 to 20% of pericardial effusions are found to be idiopathic. That's a great breakdown, AJ. And I'm just wondering, uh, for our patient in particular, it sounds like the pericardial effusion has certainly grown over a period of time, and there are some echocardiographic signs of tamponade or pretamponade. But there's also, independent of that, a decreased LV systolic function, and there was an elevation in troponin leak. So is this patient having potentially a myopericarditis? Or do you think that the LV dysfunction may be related to sepsis and the effusion is from another ideology, or that this patient has had pre-existing cardiomyopathy of some sort, and now in addition to that has a pericardial effusion? That's a good question, Amit. Regarding the presence of myopericarditis, it was a pretty low-level troponin that ultimately never really got much higher than 0.04. Additionally, she wasn't really complaining of chest pain, and the myocardial dysfunction was a little hard to discern, whether it was simply because she was just going so fast or, as you mentioned, in the setting of sepsis. There was actually mention at one point that she may have been developing a stress cardiomyopathy, as her EF appeared to have some regionality similar to that seen in Takatsubo's. Regardless, our issue at this point, given that she had features of tamponade, was to address the tamponade quickly. And that was ultimately how we proceeded next. Nathan, it should be noted too, in pericardial fusions with tamponade, the classic exam findings are related to Beck's triad with hypotension, muffled heart sounds, and elevated jugular venous pressure. Now, Beck's triad is not particularly sensitive. Uh, however, it should be noted that the loss of wide descent in the JVP 
but the presence of the X descent is classic. X and Y descent correspond to periods when venous inflow is increasing. Loss of the Y descent is thought to occur because the total heart volume is fixed and severe tamponade. And remember, Y descent normally corresponds to the drop in atrial pressure after the tricuspid valve opens. Inflow cannot increase in tamponade and the descent is lost. The X descent occurs when atrial relaxation and ventricular ejection acts for the atrial contraction. Now, it should also be noted that a key physical exam maneuver in evaluating patient with tamponade is pulsus paradoxus, which is defined by a decrease in systolic blood pressure of 10 millimeters per mercury or greater with inspiration. Now, in order to measure a pulsus paradoxus, you place a blood pressure cuff on the patient's arm and very slowly deflate the cuff while listening for quartz cough sounds. Note the pressure that you first hear the sound during expiration, which will be the highest systolic blood pressure. Then you lower the cuff pressure until you arrive at the pressure during which the cortical sounds are continuous during inspiration. Take the difference between these two pressures. And if the difference between the two readings is greater than 10, it's classified as a pulsus paradoxus. Now, physiologically, this occurs because systemic venous return and subsequent right heart filling is greater during inspiration in tamponade and in normal heart. In normal hearts, there's a small bowing of the septum to the left, which mildly decreases stroke volume and blood pressure. In tamponade, however, this phenomenon is exaggerated because the heart is surrounded by high pericardial pressures that compress the heart. Hence, the intraventricular septal shifts limits the LV size, stroke volume, and ability to generate pressure, thus causing the systolic blood pressure to fall. One other point to add is that the rate of accumulation of fluid is important, not strictly the size of the infusion. In other words, slowly accumulating effusion allows time for the pericardium to accommodate for the extra fluid and can build hundreds and hundreds of cc's of fluid before actually causing tamponade while a rapidly developing effusion may cause tamponade with smaller quantities of fluid. Wow, guys, this is a fantastic deep dive into tamponade, and it's similar to constriction and restriction. A lot of confusing parts, you know, definitely a lot of overlap, and the Venn diagram has a lot of things that are connected with each other but separate. So, you know, just to compare to constrictive pericarditis, where we had talked about it in previous episodes, where we have a locked box, where the heart is locked in a box. And the key fundamental hemodynamic problem is that the heart is dissociated from the rest of the thorax. And so basically that intrathoracic and intracardiac dissociation leads to so many of the hemodynamic findings that we see in constrictive pericarditis. But here we have another concept, and this is that we have high pressures around the heart. It's not a locked box. It's like basically... Imagine if you stuck a syringe into somebody's pericardial space and just started to infuse fluid, 10 cc's at a time, 20, 30, 40. What will happen is that pericardial space, which is really not supposed to have too much fluid, is going to fill up with fluid. But it's not, as Nitin pointed out, it's not about the amount of fluid fills up in this space, but rather it's the pressure that it generates. And so it literally starts to suffocate the heart. But not only does it suffocate the ventricles specifically, it suffocates all the four chambers of the heart. It surrounds the heart and suffocates the heart and squeezes that off. And that squeezing off prevents filling. And that is a fundamental problem with tamponade that is a little bit different than constricted pericarditis. Now, the things that constricted pericarditis and tamponade share in common is the idea that the RV free wall has nowhere to move. But when you have a locked box or a pressurized system around the heart, you lose the ability for the RV to expand and accommodate for that fluid. And so what ends up happening is that it has to take it out on the septum. The RV says, if I can't expand one way, I'm expanding the other. And it shoves the septum over into the left ventricle. And that not only basically takes up space in the left ventricle, it distorts that left ventricle. And we know that left ventricle is supposed to be like a French baguette, beautiful, 
tasty, delicious baguette that has the right shape for that squeeze, that towel wringing squeeze. And when you move over the septum, you lose the ability for the left ventricle to A, fill and squeeze well as well. And so in both cases, whether it's because of your locked box or because of your high pressure system, you end up taking it out on the LV. Now, the reason why you notice that inspiratory and expiratory variation exists is because when we inspire, as we've said in past episodes, when you inhale, your lungs drink, your lungs breathe in the air with that negative pressure, the heart drinks as well. And so when that extra volume basically comes into the right ventricle, it basically has this consequence and effects of the septal bowing and then the LV suffers. So that's why an inspiration, it's the RV side that's doing better. And an expiration where that reverses, the LV side does better. And that's where you see the pulses and a lot of the hemodynamic physical exam findings that we see with tamponade and with restriction. But a fundamental difference between tamponade and constrictive pericarditis is that in tamponade, you have this high pressure system that is affecting all of the chambers. So it's the LV, the RV, the LA, and the RA. And so all of the pressures fail to fill. And that has some certain findings that we see with the venous exam again. So yeah, that's definitely a bird's eye view of tamponade and why the physiology is absolutely fascinating. So definitely interested to hear how you manage this case and also figure out the diagnosis and the etiology of the tamponade, guys. Absolutely. So a subsequent pericardiocentesis performed at the bedside revealed 250 cc's of serous fluid, which was sent to the lab for cytology, protein, glucose, LDH, pH, cell count, fungal culture, and histoplasma antigen. Pericardial fluid analysis showed nine white blood cells, 77 red blood cells, glucose of 108, LDH was 321, protein level was 2.9, pH of 7.6, and fungal and bacterial cultures that showed no growth. Pericardial fluid histoantigen was positive, and both urine and serum histoantigen was also positive. Wow, that's incredible, Sion. You guys essentially diagnosed a very concerning hemodynamic insult that resulted in sinus tachycardia that got you guys involved in the first place. So again, kudos to the primary team for having the foresight to consult cardiology. How did the patient respond hemodynamically to the pericardiocentesis? And also just, it's incredible to see a histoplasma pericarditis with a pericardial effusion in the first place. She responded extremely well. Her tachycardia in front of her eyes, in fact, even on the echo, as the fluid is being removed, you can see that her tachycardia was greatly came down from 160 down to the low 100, 110, 120 range. She then also began to hemodynamically stabilize out. And ultimately, she needed to have her medical therapy continued for her histoplasmosis, as well as routine surgical care for her two recent surgeries. Sion, why don't you take us through the next steps of her management? Absolutely. Her steroid therapy was then tapered. Immunomodulatory therapy was also held as disseminated histo was favored to be the primary illness. She was managed on a prolonged course of meropenem and linazolid for five weeks for intra-abdominal infection in the setting of her allergy history and continued on amphotericin for about two months which was transitioned to posaconazole for long-term oral therapy, which was planned for a one-year course. Regarding the pericardial effusion and the pericarditis, the pericardial drain remained in place for 10 days. She was considered for the pericardial window, but the drain was ultimately removed as output dropped to less than 25 cc's daily. Interestingly, she did complain of pleuritic chest pain after her drain was removed, possibly indicating a pericarditic pain due to apposition of her pericardial layers. 
She was initiated on colchicine and a two-week ibuprofen taper after a multidisciplinary discussion with ID and surgical colleagues, particularly with regards to avoiding renal injury. She gradually improved clinically and was discharged to rehab. Wow, guys, what an amazing case. I have not seen a case of histoplasmosis in so long. Nithin, can you remind us broadly, how does histo typically behave and how are they managed? Sure. So histo, as we were describing earlier, is most commonly located in Ohio and the Mississippi River valleys. Worldwide, it's primarily in North and Central America. Histo typically causes pulmonary pathology and can present as pneumonia with pulmonary lymphadenopathy, cavitary lung lesions, mediastinal masses, and can even cause SVC syndrome. It sometimes even resembles sarcoidosis clinically and radiographically. The degree of treatment really depends on the degree of illness. However, most infections are self-limited and require no treatment, particularly in the immunocompetent patient. Disseminated histo, on the other hand, is progressive extrapulmonary infection thought to occur due to hematogenous dissemination, and immunosuppression, as we all know, is a key risk factor. Demonstrating that the pathogen is extrapulmonary is a necessary diagnostic step, but this may be difficult. Typical testing includes serum and urine antigen testing and sampling of the suspected infected tissue when applicable, which may include anything from CSF to skin to bowel, as was seen in this case, or also notably in this case, the pericardial fluid. Special stains can be used, like a PAS stain, to better provide microscopic evidence of the disease. And ultimately, treatment is indicated in disseminated histo, usually consisting of amphotericin and or an azole drug. Length of therapy is usually extended to at least a year, sometimes longer, as relapse can occur. That was incredible, Nathan. I mean, do we know anything about potential mechanism for histo causing pericarditis and tamponade? Yeah, so histopericarditis is uncommonly reported in literature. The first suggestion of it is way back into the mid-1950s, where positive histoplasmin skin testing, pericardial calcifications, and negative tuberculin skin testing were all seen together in a patient. A more definitive diagnosis is largely based on histoplasma being present in pericardial tissue, but cases are scarcely reported in literature as having pericardial tissue requires to obtain this surgically. Pericarditis due to pulmonary histopathology is believed to occur as a complication of inflammation in adjacent mediastinal lymph nodes in patients, and this represents more of an inflammatory process rather than a true primary infectious process. However, a true pericardial infection, which can be seen in disseminated disease, is very rare. Overall, we should note that pericardial inflammation is typically treated or able to be treated with non-steroidal anti-inflammatory agents without antifungal therapy and often improve with this simple therapy. Large pericardial effusions may impair cardiac output and require drainage, as was seen in this case. And if there is evidence of disseminated disease, we have to treat accordingly as well. AJ, while we're on the topic of pericarditis, can you review the diagnosis of pericarditis with us? Absolutely. According to ESC guidelines, the clinical diagnosis of acute pericarditis is based off of having two of the following criteria. First one being chest pain. Second one being pericardial friction rub. Third being ECG changes consistent with ST elevation and or PR depression. And then we also look for a pericardial effusion. On lab evaluations, we can look for elevated inflammatory markers. And then we can also look for imaging, potentially CT or MRI, to suggest evidence of inflammation. So now in our patient, she did have an effusion and elevated inflammatory markers, which is concerning for potential pericarditis at the same time. That's a great reminder of what to look for when evaluating patients for suspected pericarditis. What about management, I'm wondering, though? 
how do we manage pericarditis, particularly when it comes to an effusion, like in our patient, both in the short and the long term? Sure. So the first step is to determine if there's tamponade or threatened tamponade. When tamponade is present, we typically pursue emergent pericardiocentesis or open drainage with biopsy if necessary. Temporizing measures may include IV hydration and or inotropes or pressors, but these are only temporizing measures. Loculated effusions with clots or fibrinous material are more technically challenging for closed pericardiocentesis, and open approaches should be considered with creation of a window if encountered. The decision of closed versus open can sometimes be challenging, and expert opinions should be sought from interventional cardiology and surgery. When effusion is present without tamponade, you have time, and the first step is to make sure you have a complete and thorough history and understanding and screen for underlying process, as an underlying process could have caused the effusion and potentially be treatable. Possible causes might include a neoplastic or autoimmune process, infections, or even hypothyroidism. Unfortunately, pericardial fluid analysis has low diagnostic yield, so routine pericardiocentesis is not typically recommended. However, the decision to proceed depends on the clinical status of the patient, the size of the effusion, as smaller effusions are more procedurally challenging, and an understanding of the underlying cause, which, as mentioned, could be addressed medically. If a pericardial effusion is worked up and thought to be inflammatory, anti-inflammatory medications such as NSAIDs, colchicine, or if NSAIDs are contraindicated, steroids may be initiated with close follow-up, and pericardiocentesis could then be attempted if medications are unsuccessful. Regarding long-term surveillance and management after acute pericarditis, we first need to check to see if inflammatory signs are present, as in the short term, we can manage, as mentioned, with anti-inflammatories such as ibuprofen or aspirin for one to two weeks. Alternatively, steroids could be used, but these are not favored because there is a high risk of recurrence for pericarditis if these are employed. A three-month course of colchicine is also recommended. It is worth noting, however, that the colchicine course is more established in the viral or idiopathic patient, as the ICAP and COPE trials, which spurred the recommendation for colchicine by the ESC, included 75 to 80% quote idiopathic types of pericarditis. However, there is some theoretical opinion that colchicine may actually reduce the effectiveness for treatment against bacterial pericarditis, but the ESC guidelines do place a class one indication on treatment of acute pericarditis with colchicine. Lastly, a follow-up echo is often employed, and inflammatory markers are often trended as well to see that the effusion has not recurred and that inflammatory markers have normalized. This has just been a masterful discussion about the approach to treatment of pericarditis. And I think in this particular case, the answers are very challenging. Probably one, because I can only imagine that the data is limited for approach to histoplasma pericarditis but also because you've got a few competing issues here, right? One is, yes, our typical approach for pericarditis is the anti-inflammatory regimen of high-dose NSAIDs and colchicine. But for refractory inflammatory pericarditis, you may have to step it up with adding steroids and potentially steroid-sparing agents like azathioprine and biologics like typically IL-1 antagonists. However, in this case, you also have the issue of this being a histoplasma infection-associated pericarditis. And so not only do you have to take care of the inflammation with anti-inflammatory therapy, you also have to have a protracted course of antifungals, and you have to balance anti-inflammatory therapy to tone down pericardial inflammation with the immunocompetence that will be important for fighting this terrible infection. And so following this patient over a long period of time, adjusting anti-inflammatory therapy in a way that's guided is going to be important, but what are you going to use to guide you? ESR and CRP, 
Sure, they can be elevated for pericarditis, and in simple patients with straightforward pericarditis, these are very useful markers. But for this patient, it could be elevated because of histoplasma. It could be elevated because of recovering from abdominal surgery. It could be elevated from another infection related to being immunocompromised. And it can be elevated from the Crohn's flares themselves. So I think in this particular case, a cardiac MRI can add a wealth of information because it can really help you localize the inflammation to the pericardium, as well as potential bystander inflammation of the myocardium to see if you also have a component of myocarditis in addition to the pericarditis. And also, you know, there are certain causes of pericarditis that lend the pericardium to fibrosing and causing constriction down the road. And the utility of CMR also is to evaluate for signs of constriction, that intracardiac, intrathoracic dissociation and interventricular dependence that Dan was talking about. So serial cardiac MRIs may actually be very useful for this patient just because inflammatory markers are going to be fraught with complexity and uh, lack of specificity for this particular patient. But really terrific discussion, terrific case, really complex case, and just very grateful that this patient was under your care and your team's care because there's a lot to dissect and a lot to think about here. Thanks for that. I just want to go ahead and summarize what we talked about, particularly to give folks some take-home points from what we talked about today. First, I would say that pericarditis is a rare manifestation of disseminated histoplasmosis, but should be considered in the correct clinical context. Immunosuppression is a red flag, and it should raise our suspicion for dissemination of this pathogen. Next, this case reminds us of how important it is to remain diagnostically open-minded. In this case, there were a number of features that appeared consistent with the Crohn's flare early on, including transmural inflammation on small bowel biopsy. However, histoplasma later appeared in places we didn't even initially suspect, namely the pericardial space, and treatment course changed. The case highlighted why we should not anchor and why we should modify our treatment plan as we gather more data. Then, tamponade also deserves respect. Pulses should always be done as an early, easy, non-invasive evaluation, and echocardiography should soon follow to establish the diagnosis. Early intervention is typically warranted. A sizable percentage of cases are caused by infection or malignancy, and it's important to do a thorough evaluation for these underlying causes. Finally, this case also highlights the importance of multidisciplinary care for systemic illness. In this case, Surgery, GI, ID, and cardiology all collaborated to address the complex illness that our patient faced. Together, we were able to clinch the diagnosis and provide the care she required. Sion, that was amazing. And that summary really highlights so many points that we've discussed. Taking a patient and took care of the life-threatening hemodynamic compromise from tempanide, and now we're left with picking up the blocks, figuring out what happens. We understand that it's acute pericarditis, we have a diagnosis and we have a treatment plan going forward. And I totally agree. This case really highlights the multi-D aspect of taking care of a patient as complicated as this. And you guys are just phenomenal doctors. So it's Sion, Nathan, AJ. This conversation has gotten me completely stoked about cardiology, as many of these conversations do. But I want to hear what made you guys stoked about cardiology and particularly what drew you to Georgetown. Do you mind sharing that with us? Absolutely. So I picked cardiology, I think, around my third year of medical school, and I've continued to really feel very happy with my decision. And that's mainly because the scope of cardiology is so broad. I love how you can see patients at the bedside, 
work with them longitudinally in clinic, and then at the same time, be the one who's reading the diagnostic studies and, and doing the intervention. So it's really just such a broad field. And then additionally, the physiology of it, the fluid dynamics, the physics of it is very interesting as well. So that's really why I love cardiology. In terms of why Georgetown, so I sort of interviewed and fell in love. For me, this program had the perfect mix of academic rigor, world-class faculty, it's high acuity, fast pace, and there are a wide variety of specialized procedures. The other aspect for me that's really important, which is collegiality and collaboration. I got the sense when I interviewed here that everyone is approachable, they're pleasant, and they just truly love doing the work and helping the fellows advance. Another big factor was that Georgetown Washington Hospital Center is a powerhouse for imaging. Cardiology pretty much owns all of the cardiac imaging here, so as a fellow, you're exposed to everything. My interests particularly are in echo and prevention, and I'm thinking I want to do advanced echo in the future, so that really factored into my decision as well. And then finally, the faculty have such a huge commitment to the betterment of the fellows. Gabby and Christy, our PD and APD, have done, I think, a phenomenal job with keeping the fellows well-supported, getting us first years up to speed with a structured curriculum that includes an intensive boot camp and an extensive orientation. So I've really loved being here so far. Thanks, Amit and Dan, for the fantastic conversation and dissection of this case. I did engineering physics when I was in college, and I realized I loved cardiology at the start of my second year class on the cardiovascular system. I spent most of the first year struggling to memorize infectious diseases and names of drugs. And then when I got to cardiology, I realized it was all physiology. It was all understanding processes. And I realized I was doing less memorizing and more understanding. And after I finished that course and then did my third year medical rotations, I realized that this was something I wanted to do for a long time. And that's what drew me to medicine and then later on to cardiology. I love the fact that cardiology just makes sense. I was drawn to Georgetown because of the opportunities for hands-on learning. It really puts you at the front of the decision tree for critically ill patients, for complex patients on the consult service, and provides you with the opportunities to experience procedures and perform echocardiograms, as well as a slew of imaging modalities to round out your clinical cardiac care. Other opportunities that the program affords are opportunities to employ the newest techniques and technology. The program is a big place has large clinical volume, and is always employing new techniques. And it's wonderful to be a part of this initiative. Lastly, the program has a number of diverse learning opportunities and a wonderful collegial environment. I love my co-fellows. I love the fellows in the class above and below me. We get along. We take care of each other. And there are unique opportunities to learn together. I think for me, similarly to both Nathan and Sion, I fell in love with cardiology when I first began learning about the anatomy, the physiology, the pathophysiology related to the system. It's also perfect, and it really just clicked in my mind when I was in medical school, and I really had my heart set on doing cardiology as a career. Additionally, I truly went into medicine to make a difference in my community and have some effect on health disparities. Unfortunately, cardiovascular disease is still one of the major killers of African Americans in this country, and it only seemed fitting to become a cardiologist in order to provide some sort of effect on this large systemic issue. I chose Georgetown. It's actually funny because I was actually born at MedStar Washington Hospital Center, so this is truly a coming-of-home experience for me. 
I first was introduced to medicine when I began shadowing in the cath lab as a high school student growing up in the area. I have family members that were treated at Georgetown and Medsa Washington Hospital Center, and I saw the amazing care that they were given while they were patients on the inpatient service. And that made it very clear to me that I wanted to join this team of amazing clinicians and doctors. Uh, wow, AJ, I, I'm just thinking in my mind how incredibly proud your family must be that you're now a cardiology fellow in the hospital you were born in just a handful of years ago. But AJ, Nitin, Sion, this was just such an incredible discussion, a whirlwind tour through a topic that we hadn't even broached on the Cardio Nerds podcast yet of tamponade. It's a huge topic. Very excited to use this case as a fulcrum for a pericardial series down the road. Thank you so much for giving us the incredible teaching and a glimpse into your phenomenal program. Thank you, thank you, thank you, and welcome to the Cardi Nerds family. Thank you guys so much for hosting us. Thanks for having us, guys. Appreciate it. And now for the ECPR segment, we have one of our favorite cardiologists, Dr. Patrick Baring. Dr. Baring is a clinical cardiologist at the MedStar Washington Hospital Center and an expert member of our cardiovascular imaging team with special interest in echo and cardiac MRI. Dr. Baring is actively involved within our program through direct mentorship of our fellows in the echo lab and the MRI reading room. He's also actively engaged during our weekly echo conference and at a number of our noon conferences throughout the year. He was awarded the Faculty Teaching Award by our fellows in 2019 for his outstanding commitment to fellow education, and we are just so truly fortunate to have Dr. Baring as a teacher and colleague and friend. Without further ado, Dr. Baring. That was a very kind introduction, and I would also like to express my gratitude to Sion, AJ, and Nitin, some of our fantastic fellows here at Georgetown University and Washington Hospital Center, for the opportunity to add some comments to the very interesting case presentation of disseminated histoplasmosis with pericarditis. I would also like to thank the Cardio Nerds team for highlighting the full frontal cardio nerdity that's running rampant in training programs around the country. Pericardial disease has a variety of causes and stages, but I am pleased to see the pericardium getting its deserved attention in the CNCR series. Briefly, I would like to point out that the team-based approach to this patient's care and the team's passion for making an accurate diagnosis dictates the appropriate treatment plan. While the answer to the cause of pericarditis does not often lie in the pericardial space, a careful consideration of the patient as a whole through a multidisciplinary approach often helps to hone in on the diagnosis. In this patient receiving a TNF-alpha inhibitor, there is an elevated risk for granulomatous fungal infections, the most common of which is histoplasma capsulatum. When one sees a combination of mediastinal lymphadenopathy and pericardial effusion, the probability of pericardial disease from mycobacterium or histoplasma must be considered. The presence of the histoplasma antigen helped to nail this diagnosis for a critically ill young woman after the medical teams gave close attention to the hemodynamic effects of the pericardial effusion and ultimately decided to pursue pericardiosynthesis. Clinically, a combination of blood tests and diagnostic imaging studies are very helpful and complementary in the diagnosis and treatment of pericardial disease. In this case, the CT scan revealed a pericardial effusion and the echocardiogram helped to clarify the physiological effects in order to influence the timing of pericardial synthesis and prevent hemodynamic collapse that would have ultimately ensued. In addition to CT imaging and cardiac ultrasound, cardiac MRI with gadolinium has important 
prognostic significance to identify pericardial inflammation and track the response to therapy since T2-weighted images can identify the presence of pericardial edema and late gadolinium enhancement of the pericardium has a strong relationship with both pericardiovascularity and inflammation. Cardiac MRI can thus help to classify the pericardial disease into acute, subacute, or chronic stages. It can track the stages as a response to treatment, and it can provide more objective data on when tapering of therapy is safe to pursue. The wide field of view and tissue characterization from cardiac MRI are also useful when evaluating for the presence of associated myocarditis. Because many different tests exist for the pericardium, it is important to have a specific diagnostic question and action plan each time a different modality is considered. The right test for the right patient at the right time helps us to serve our patients efficiently and effectively. Thank you very much for the opportunity to be on the show. And now for a word from our program director, Gabby Weissman. Dr. Weissman is an associate professor of medicine, cardiology, and radiology at the Georgetown University School of Medicine Clinician Educator Track. He's also director of cardiac MRI at MedStar Washington Hospital Center and leads the cardiovascular MRI and cardiovascular CT core laboratory at the MedStar Health Research Institute. On a national level, Dr. Weissman serves as a chair of the ACC's Cardiology Training and Workforce Committee, and he has chaired and served as program director for several national cardiovascular education conferences across the nation. Dr. Weissman works closely with our fellows in clinic on the consult service and during noon conferences, and his expertise in clinical cardiology and education further enhances his role as an outstanding program director and mentor. Now on to Dr. Weissman for a few words. Hello. My name is Gabby Wiseman. I'm the Cardiology Fellowship Program Director here at Georgetown University and MedStar Health in Washington, D.C. To start off by thanking the CardioNerds group for having us participate uh, in this series uh, that they've been putting on, really a great series in which multiple fellowships have been involved uh, with fellows teaching and learning from each other and all of us sharing cases together. So thanks for this great service to the community. I'd also like to thank our fellows, Dr. Tsiana Berra, A.J. Grant, and Malik, who really did a great job presenting this very interesting case, as well as Dr. Patrick Baring, who served as the discussant for the case. My role today is really much more limited, and that is to tell you a little bit about our cardiovascular disease training program here in the nation's capital. I'll try to touch about a few things that I think that make us special uh, and make this really a great place to train. Our location in the nation's capital is really unique. This is a place where a lot is happening. Certainly, many organizations, such as the American College of Cardiology, do a lot of work in this region, as one can imagine, within the world of healthcare policy. I think this keeps our fellows really engaged uh, in what is going on in the greater cardiology community writ large and allows wonderful opportunities for engagement at those levels. Of course, the heart of our training program is in our hospitals, and we train primarily in three hospitals, the MedStorm Washington Hospital Center, large tertiary care center in D.C. that really provides the backbone of our training program. This is where advanced cardiovascular care is delivered, in the cath lab, in the EP lab, on the floors, with heart failure, uh, etc. And is where the fellows get the majority um, of their training and spend the majority of their time. In addition, we train in two other locations. One of them is the D.C. VA hospital. This is the main VA hospital in the D.C. region and the main referral center for a rather large catchment area, again, allowing 
our fellows to see patients in a very different environment with a great group of faculty completely engaged with teaching and educating as well as patient care. Lastly, our fellows spend a significant amount of time in the MedStar Georgetown University Hospital. This is a hospital based on Georgetown University campus, which specializes in predominantly non-cardiovascular care, things such as solid organ transplant, oncology, specialty surgery, and the like, but really allows our fellows to see cardiovascular disease in a different environment, care for patients in a place that's somewhat different than the large tertiary care cardiovascular center. Again, with a wonderful faculty that spends quite a bit of time teaching, educating, mentoring fellows. I think that this environment really allows for fellows to really experience cardiovascular care across its whole breadth, from bread and butter medicine all the way to the most complex cases. We have some wonderful collaborations that I think, again, make this environment somewhat unique. For example, our critical care department is integrated across cardiac surgery, vascular surgery, as well as cardiology. We have multiple faculty or dual board certified in both cardiology as well as critical care medicine. This really allows our fellows to get a unique perspective as to how to care for these complex patients who require a really multidisciplinary approach to their care. We have a collaboration with Children's Hospital where our fellows spend time there seeing adult congenital heart patients and learning from a faculty whose expertise and time is really spent with that population, seeing patients in the clinics, seeing them in the procedural labs uh, or in the imaging labs. In addition, our fellows get exposed to research throughout the course of their three years, whether it be clinical research or whether it be outcome research or whatever the interest of the fellow is. Our fellows work with faculty across the system as well as with nearby institutions such as the NIH, allowing them to really explore their research interests and for those that are interested, start to build the basis for a career within academic medicine. Lastly, medical education is another focus of ours, not only in providing medical education through the course of the fellowship, but also in training people as to how to think about medical education for those that are interested in a career as an educator, or at least having medical education is an important part of what they're going to do moving forward throughout their career. Our fellows represent a diverse group of individuals from multiple backgrounds, and I think that all of this really adds a lot to the environment that our fellows work in. They are a cohesive group of individuals and really a great pleasure to be with and the reason that many of us are here day to day working with them, learning from them, as well as teaching. Lastly, mentorship is clearly an important part of fellowship. This is a final step for many or near final step for some as they move on towards their career. And whether the next step is practice in the community, practice in an academic setting, or perhaps moving on to a sub-fellowship. It is the relationships that people have during their time in fellowship, the mentorship and guidance that they get as they try, as they start to move forward towards their next step that really defines much of what happens during the cardiovascular fellowship. And we're quite proud of our faculty uh, and our fellows and, and the relationships that are built here that really continue long after fellowship is over. I hope that I was able to give you a bit of a sense as to our training program. Thank you to the Cardio Nerds again for allowing us to participate here. Thank you to our fellows for participating and presenting this excellent case. And we look forward to many great cases to come from the Cardio Nerds community and for all of us to continue to learn from each other. 
Cardianers in place of our usual blooper at this point, we'd like to instead do something very special and circle back to Sion. I had the opportunity to connect with her a few days after our recording and learned that the day of our recording was a bit of an atypical day for her. So Sion, could you walk us through how that morning began for you? Yeah, absolutely. So actually the day before I was on home call and I had gotten a call about a potential left main STEMI. So of course I rushed over and saw the guy. It was an atypical story. So we were on the fence, but we put him on heparin and let him sit overnight for a cath in the morning. So it was going to be the first cath of the day around 7 a.m. So I got in my car around 6 o'clock, was driving to work. And around 6.30 or so, I stopped at this intersection, accelerated into the intersection. And all of a sudden, wham, I was crashing into a car. So yeah, basically, I found out later that day that I had totaled my cars, what the insurance said. I was fine. The other person was fine, thank goodness. So we were both healthy uh, and walked away. The other lady drove her car away and I kind of drove mine off to the side. But uh, Thank God. Yeah. Within an hour of the crash, I had gotten the insurance figured out and the tow truck had come by and whisked it away. So I figured I could go home, maybe spend some time with my baby and get some sleep, or I could go to work and try to forget everything that happened. And I figured going to work, obviously my chief was like, go home. But I thought it would probably make more sense to just go into the cath lab and just feel like maybe the day wasn't completely lost. So went to the cath lab, did three caths that day. And prior to that, as I was driving over or getting a a ride over, I was just thinking, oh, this is terrible. This is awful. Like, can we afford this? And this is going to take so much time and energy. And I just hate that this happened. And did this happen because I'm not sleeping as much because I've got the baby? Or did this happen because my mind is elsewhere because I'm a new fellow? And just thinking about a lot of different things. and But ultimately, our last cath of the day was this gentleman who was uh, a veteran, very cheerful guy. He was talking to us throughout the whole case. We did his right heart cath and his cardiac index came back at 1.6. And it was already clear that he, he you know wanted to live as long as possible, wasn't interested in palliation or palliative care. And so I knew that this was going to be uh, pretty bad news for him. And it just put everything in perspective that, you know, we have the honor to go to work every day and do amazing things that we love and, and ourselves often be physically healthy and, and come home and see our families and have these rounded, balanced lives that often our patients may not get the opportunity to have. So um, at the end of the day, I spent, I think, the first half of the day feeling sorry for myself. And, and I spent the second half of the day feeling uh, very grateful. And it was just a different perspective. So that's what happened on Wednesday prior to our recording. And then I drove to the airport and picked up our nanny and then got home. And an hour later, we recorded. Wow, <laughs> <laughs> You know, first, I have to say I wholeheartedly agree with you that the work we do in taking care of other people is just so special in so many ways. We get to be stewards of their health and their lives in some of their best moments, but also in some of their worst moments. And I think the takeaway that you took away in perspective is just so incredible. I also just have to say that 
<laughs> you woke up in the morning and really totaled your car and still had the fortitude to go about your day, go to work, hop onto Cardio Nerds and give us just such an incredible discussion and teaching, picked up your nanny, took care of your kid. I mean, I think it would have been very respectful for you to have decided to go home and just be able to process. So this is incredible. You're incredible uh, how you're able to do all of that. We wouldn't have even known on the recording itself. How old is your child? Uh, he's two and a half months. Oh, wow. I, two and a half months. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, may I ask how it's been being a fellow and, and this is your first one. So yeah. a, a brand and a brand new mom. Yeah, it's, it's a little hectic. Um, there are a couple of things that make our situation a little different. My husband's actually finishing up his psychiatry residency at Wake Forest. So he's in North Carolina and he gave me the latitude to decide exactly where I wanted to go. And so we knew it would be a big sacrifice on his part. He only sees his son, you know, on the weekends and then a sacrifice on my part with not having him here all the time. But so that's been a little challenging. My program has been super supportive. They tried to give me eight weeks off. I took six because I just, I don't know, I just didn't want to miss everything. We do, we have a six week orientation and then folks get ushered in. And I guess I was just a little scared I'd be left behind. But so, and then also one of my chiefs has two kids, Calvin Kagan. And he, he was like, no, you need eight weeks. <laughs> we'll give you eight weeks. And additionally, he put me on Echo first and then Cath at the VA which both of those tend to be a little less frenetic. I was super glad that I didn't get the CVICU right away because that schedule is really rough and it's just a lot more demanding, I think, emotionally and mentally as well. So I really felt like he was looking out for me or probably both our chiefs when they sat down and, and made my schedule, but they were super flexible and super understanding. And they knew things, I think, about what my life would be like that I didn't when I started. So that's been really helpful. Um, and then, yeah, overall, as I'm sure you know, babies at this age don't really sleep much. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah. I am slowly adjusting and I'm finding my way and finding little hacks here and there. But he's a good kid. He really, the only thing he cries for is food. I give it to him and he's happy. <laughs> That's incredible. See, it's just incredible to hear how you've been able to balance everything. It really does take a village. Like yourself, I'm extremely grateful. Dan and I are very grateful for our partners in helping us balance as a family and as fellows. And I think the program being able to come around and support you as a doctor, a trainee, a mother is just so incredible and important and necessary. I think at this point, I'd just love to recognize our brothers and sisters, our colleagues and mentors who wear all these many hats. And I recall what Dr. Nanette Wenger said about the different spheres that we operate in and the importance of uh, helping each other so we can be our 100% in each of these spheres. So, uh, Sian, thank you so much for being you, doing all the things that you're doing and helping us not only teach, but also recognize the importance of the different hats that we wear. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.